Greetings and welcome. My name is James White. We are undergoing a study of the doctrine of the Trinity. Why do Christians believe what they believe about the nature of God? Is it something that we can compromise on or is it something that is forced upon us by the testimony of Scripture itself? It is my conviction that if we believe everything that Scripture teaches on this subject, if we don't pick and choose, if we don't ignore certain sections of the Bible, if we don't mistranslate certain sections of the Bible, we will have to believe in the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, the fact that there is only one true God, one being that is God, but that being is shared by three co-equal and co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we looked at the first of those foundations in our preceding study, and that was the fact there is only one true and eternal God. And there are many more scriptures that we could have examined that emphasize the fact that there is one God who is the creator of all things. But now we move on to the second foundation, one of the more controversial foundations, and that is the teaching that there are three divine persons. The Bible clearly and consistently differentiates between the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. Never does the Bible identify the Father as the Son, the Son as the Spirit, or the Spirit as the Father. In fact, the Bible shows us very clearly the fact that th these three divine persons have communication with one another. They interact with one another. So this is a vital distinction to remember. When we are talking about the Trinity, we are talking about one what and three who's. The what is the being of God, that which makes God God. The three who's are the persons, the divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we confuse these, we will surely never come to an accurate knowledge of the doctrine of the Trinity itself we must learn to avoid category errors. And may I again point out the fact that the vast majority of objections raised by various groups against the teaching of the Trinity are based upon these category errors. And I cannot tell you how many times I have seen Christians defending falsehoods about the Trinity because they thought that since the objection had been made, they had to defend against that objection. They allowed themselves to be pushed into a position of defending something they actually did not believe. When we say that God is one in the category of being, it does not follow, that does not prove that he is one in the category of person. The Bible emphasizes that God is one. We can agree with many others who say God is one as long as that is in a oneness of being and not a oneness of person. The Bible precludes a belief in a oneness of person because it clearly reveals to us three divine persons and as we will see, teaches the deity, the divinity, the co-equality of those divine persons. And so it's important to look at this doctrine. How do we demonstrate this second foundation. How is it that the Bible teaches that there are three divine persons? Well, the Bible plainly teaches to us that the Father has eternally existed as a divine person. That one is not really overly controversial. Almost all groups would agree that that is the Bible's teaching. But it also teaches that the Son, likewise, has eternally existed as a divine person, not just a plan, not just a thought, but as a divine person. 
and that the Holy Spirit, likewise, because he is associated with the Father and the Son, has existed eternally as a divine person. Not merely as plans, not merely as names, and not as an actor who sometimes acts like the Father and sometimes puts another mask on and acts like the Son and then puts another mask on and acts like the Spirit. That is an ancient heresy that was, in fact, one of the earliest Christological or theological heresies of the church was this idea that you have one person who sometimes acts like the Father, sometimes acts like the Son, and sometimes acts like the Holy Spirit. That is not what the doctrine of the Trinity is presenting to us at all. Now, how do we then find this out? Where can we go? Well, one of the most important ways of doing this and most effective ways of doing this is to respond to those who would say, no, the Father and the Son are one person. They are not distinguished from one another, and the Son as a divine person has not existed eternally. Generally, that's where the focus is. Those groups that attempt to teach this focus upon making Jesus and the Father either one person, or they will actually have Jesus as two persons, that he was the Father and the Son, and they will limit the idea of the Son to the human nature of Jesus. So the Son, from their perspective, has not eternally existed as a divine person or even as a human person, the Son only referring to his human nature. Most, there are very few attacks that would simply go after the Holy Spirit and trying to deny the Holy Spirit equality with the Father and the Son. If the Father and the Son exist as separate and, and one in the being of God, but distinguishable from one another in their personhood, uh, the, the person of the Holy Spirit flows rather naturally from that. So how can we demonstrate that the, the how can we demonstrate the eternal preexistence, personhood, and deity of the Son? I would suggest three biblical texts would be very useful in doing this, and I would encourage you uh, to look at these texts in the scriptures with me. The first would be John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 18. John chapter 17, verses 3 through 5, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And so if you take your Bible with me and turn with me to John chapter 1, and let's look at what the Word of God has to say to us in that context. In John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Here we are introduced to someone called the Logos, the Word. And this Word is eternal. In fact, as we look at each of the phrases in John 1.1, we discover that in the original language, the Apostle John expresses important things to us about this Word. The first phrase of John 1.1, John 1.1a, tells us, in the beginning was the Word. And he uses a form of the Greek verb that expresses timeless existence. Elsewhere in the prologue, he will use a different Greek verb of everyone else, of, of John, of the created world, that does carry within it the idea of coming into existence at a point in time. But when he speaks of the logos here in John 1, the word, he uses a verb that is timeless. In other words, as far back as you want to push the beginning, the word is already in existence. The word eternally exists. But then he tells us in the next phrase, and the word was with God. 
And there he uses a preposition in the original language that emphasizes face-to-face -face communication. There is a relationship between the Word and God. This is also used of human beings who are talking face-to-face -face and in it indicates a relationship that exists. And then in the third phrase, we have, and the Word was God. Now, at this point, a person might be somewhat confused and say, well, wait a minute. You just told me that the Word was face-to-face -face with God, and now you're telling me the Word is God? How can that be? Well, John does not confuse us because he uses the Greek language once again very carefully to express what he's saying. By placing the words in the order that he does and by using the words he does, he's communicating to us the, not the identity of the Logos, but the nature of the Logos, the Word. And what he's saying to us is the Word was as to his nature, deity. And so we have the Word is eternal, the Word has eternally had a relationship with God, and the Word is as to His nature, God. These are descriptions of a person, not a plan, not a concept, not a thought in God's mind. The Logos has a personal existence, and that existence is in eternity itself. This is extremely important to recognize because we're talking here about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, who is the God with whom the word eternally was? If we say this is the father, can we prove this? Well, we can, because you see in the prologue of John, we have a literary form called book ending. For example, there are some, some books here on the set, and, and you can put a bookend on one end and on the other end, and it holds the books together. As a literary device, what you do is you, you make a, an important defining statement at the beginning of a section of, of uh, literary writing, and then you repeat it at the end so that it holds the whole thing together. That's what John has done here. In John 1.1, 1, 1, he talks to us about who the Logos is. And then at the end of the, pro the prologue, in verse 18, he repeats many of the same concepts. For example, one rendering of verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. So here he asserts that no one has seen God, yet it is God, the only Son, the unique God who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Now, you immediately might say, well, well, people did see God in the Old Testament. Isaiah saw God sitting upon his throne in Isaiah 6.1. Well, it's one of the reasons that the Gospel of John is going to identify Jesus as Yahweh, as Jehovah, as the very one that Isaiah saw sitting upon his throne. That you find in John 12.41. So yes, people did see God in the Old Testament, and the person they were seeing was the Son, because it is the Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made Him known. He is the one who has revealed the Father to us. And so yes, we have as the basis of this a recognition of the correctness of our reading of John chapter 1, verse 1, that it was the Father with whom the Son had that personal and eternal relationship. The God with whom the Father eternally existed is the Father. Here we have John speaking in Trinitarian terminology, specifically in reference to the fact that you cannot really understand 
what John is saying in this text outside of an understanding of the doctrine of Trinity, it simply wouldn't make any sense. And so there is the first text we would look at now. Let's continue on in our examination of the Son existing eternally as a divine being. Let's stay in a divine person. Let's stay in John and let's look at John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And there he is praying to the Father. This is not merely the human nature of Jesus, praying to the divine nature of Jesus. This is one eternal person praying to another. Listen carefully to the pronouns found in John chapter 17, verses 3 through 5. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, in any other instance, it would be painfully obvious that when reading these words, we are listening to the words of one person speaking to another person. Those pronouns were very clear. I, you, what you gave me to do. Clearly, this is a revelation of one person speaking to another person. But because this is divine revelation, we also recognize that it goes back into eternity itself. Because he says, now, Father, glorify me together with the glory which I had in your presence with you before the world was. That's before creation itself. How could Jesus say these words to the Father in John chapter 17? How could he use in the original language prepositions that talk about the fact that he was, he was in the presence of the Father if Jesus did not exist at that time? If the Son as a divine person did not exist in eternity past? Clearly, very clearly, we have here an assertion in Jesus' own prayers of his own eternal nature. And the language simply cannot be read in any other way than to recognize that there was a not only communication between the Father and the Son here, but then when it says, with the glory which I had with you in your presence before the world was, that Jesus is claiming an eternal nature for himself. Anyone who would like to say, well, I don't have any problem thinking about Jesus, or I can say I believe in Jesus, I just don't believe he was truly God, or I just don't believe he eternally existed, needs to listen to what Jesus himself prayed right before his betrayal and right before the cross, because his prayer to the Father reveals some very important things about his true nature and his true purposes as well. And so we have seen that John chapter 17 reveals to us in the prayers of Jesus his eternal nature. We saw in, that this is then consistent with John chapter 1 that teaches us that the word eternally existed. But I said there were three texts that we wanted to go to. And the third text, I think, is one of the most beautiful texts in all of the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, is called the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ as to God. Most scholars believe that this particular text was one of the early hymns of the Christian church, or at least a verse from one of the early hymns. In fact, when you look carefully at the text, Paul is using this as a sermon illustration. 
And just as many preachers today will use a well-known hymn as an illustration or a portion of a hymn as an illustration in a sermon, so the Apostle Paul does this. He draws upon something that would be well-known to the congregation at Philippi, and he uses it as an example. And so in these words, we have the primitive faith of the Christian people being expressed. Let's listen to what these particular words have to say. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 7, as we do not have time to work through the entirety of the Carmen Christi today. Here we read, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, this particular text is being used to exhort the Philippians to act in humility of mind toward one another. It seems that there were some divisions in the Philippian church, and they were based upon people thinking that they were more important than other people. And so what Jesus is giving us here is an example of what it means to be humble in mind. What does it mean to be humble? Well, I would submit that what Paul teaches here is that it is to have certain rights to have certain authority, and yet to lay those things aside in the service of others. That is indeed the key to peace in a Christian congregation, is for people to serve other people. As Paul said, to, to consider other people more important than yourself, to look out for the affairs of other people rather than just yourself. And so it is after saying that that he gives this illustration, and he talks about this attitude which was in Christ Jesus. And what does he say about Jesus? It says, who, although he existed in the very form of God. Well, when did he exist in the very form of God? Does the original language tell us that he entered into existence at a point in time? No, it does not. In fact, we could, I think, legitimately say he eternally existed in the form of God. And Paul is saying that there was a time when Jesus, in the presence of the Father, was the object of the worship of all of heaven itself. And even though he had that exalted position in heaven, he did not regard that equality that he had with God as a thing to be grasped. Literally, it refers to something to be held on to at all costs. Some say, well, it means he didn't reach for equality with God the Father, but that would not fit the idea of humility that is found in this text. No one would, would point to a, a person who, for example, a, a plays in a sports team, and at the end of the game, there's, there's one more opportunity for your side to win, and you have a superstar in your team, and he's about to try to make the winning shot, and the water boy goes running out and gets in the way and tries to make the shot himself. No one would point to that water boy as an example of humility. In the same way, Jesus could never be an example of humility if he was but a mere creature and didn't try to become equal with God. All that's saying is that he didn't commit blasphemy. No, the way that this is an illustration of humility is to recognize that, yes, he eternally existed in the very form of God, and, but he did not consider that equality he had with God a thing to be held on to at all, at all costs. He was willing to humble himself. He was willing to forego the worship of the angels. He was willing to enter into human existence. 
Indeed, when the text says he emptied himself, the term that is used there in the Greek language never means emptied in a literal sense. This is not saying that Jesus ceased to be God, even though he had eternally existed as God. Instead, it is saying that he made himself of no reputation. Every time Paul uses this particular term, he's using it metaphorically. He made himself of no reputation. Jesus didn't have a halo. He didn't glow. He wasn't accompanied by legions of angels strumming upon their harps. He let go of that glory. He veiled that glory. That glory was only seen in the Mount of Transfiguration, in fact, when he was here upon the earth. And it's interesting that this idea of emptying himself, making himself of no reputation, how does he do so? See what the text says? It says he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. In other words, this humiliation for the Lord Jesus involved his taking on of a human nature. It was taking on that human nature, which is the essence of the act of humiliation of the second person of the Trinity who had eternally existed in heaven itself. And so notice what happens here. Well, how does this prove that, that the Son exists as a divine person? Well, notice it says, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. To regard something, to think about something, to consider something is the act of a person. And notice it says, He emptied Himself, not He was emptied. The language is very explicit. It is very clear. This is something that the Lord Jesus purposefully and willfully did. Yes, he was sent by the Father. Yes, everything he does is in harmony with the Father. But he emptied himself. That is the great humbling here is the example for the Christian people. For here, although Jesus has the right to the worship of all of the angels in eternity, he lays those divine rights aside. He takes on a true human nature. And what does the rest of the passage say? So that he might humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, even the cross death. It was Jesus' purpose to do this from the very start, and he does so willfully. And so the text teaches us that just as the Word was eternal and the Word had a personal relationship with the Father in eternity past, as John 17 tells us, the Son was in the presence of the Father and experienced glory in eternity past. Here in eternity past, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, chooses to redeem to his own glory sinful men. And to do so, the Father takes one role, the Son takes another role, the Spirit takes another role, each willingly doing so. And the fact that the Son acts as a divine person in eternity demonstrates that the Son is a divine and eternal person, just as the Father Therefore, just the Holy Spirit as well is a divine person. So now we have two of the three foundations laid. Monotheism, we three, see three divine and eternal persons. So there's one more question left. Can we subordinate these persons to one another to where the Father is more deity than the Son and the Son is more deity than the Holy Spirit? 
Or does the Bible teach the full deity of Christ, the full deity of the Holy Spirit, and therefore force us to believe in the consistent and biblical doctrine of the Trinity? That's what we'll turn to in our next study. Thank you.